What's up, rich friends? Welcome back to another episode of Net Worth and Chill with me, your host, Vivian Tu, aka your rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street girly. This week, I have a big question for you. Do you hate your job? Have you ever wanted to pivot your career, but you feel like it's too late? or that you're too old, or that you don't have enough skills that would actually apply to your new gig? Well, you're not alone. A 2022 Gallup Global Poll found that out of the world's 1 billion full-time workers, only 15% of people are engaged at work, leaving a significant 85% unhappy at their jobs. With so many people counting down the minutes until the close of each day, it made me wonder, what about the folks who are able to make a major career pivot later on? How does that work? And what did they do before they felt comfortable actually taking that leap of faith? Well, don't you worry. We're gonna cover all of that today. Everything from quitting your job to chasing your dreams and how to change your mindset to feel like you are deserving of career fulfillment at any age. There's nobody better to help guide us through this conversation than a former law firm partner, New York Times bestselling author, viral TikTok sensation. Everyone, please welcome Joanne Molinaro, AKA the Korean vegan. Hey. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Joanne. I'm so happy to see you again. How have you been since I last saw you? I'm doing great. I I think I um I wanted to mention that I opened a Roth IRA since we last met precisely because of your advice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I'm flattered because I feel like you are one of the smartest, wittiest people on the internet so that I can teach you something. I feel really, really happy. (laughs) And before our chat, I did a little research, we'll call it instead of stalking. I actually found out that we have something extra special in common that I didn't know about. We're both you Chicago Maroons. Well, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm so happy. I went to UChicago as an undergrad and you went there for law school. But for everyone at home who hasn't stalked you and read your entire life bio, tell me about pre-Korean vegan Joanne. Like where'd you grow up, school, everything? Sure. Well, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I was born in Chicago. My parents moved us to Skokie, Illinois shortly after I was like four. Pequods is the best. (laughs) (laughs) Pequods is really good. Um, Although I was a Giordano's fan by the time I I went vegan. Um, But we then moved to Wilmette. And I went to junior high and high school there. I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for college. I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in English. And after I took about a year off to kind of like figure out what am I going to do with my life (laughs) and uh, worked as a paralegal and subsequently went to law school at the University of Chicago Law School and uh, got a job at a large law firm uh, in Chicago, which is you know, where I was born and raised, and worked there for 17 years before I went full-time Korean vegan. Okay, so we got to rewind a little bit. You said <laughs> you know, when you were a fighting Illini, you were an English major. That is so interesting to me because I know there's this trope for us Asian Americans, that you get three career choices, being doctor, lawyer, or engineer, and clearly that wasn't any of them. Did you know that you wanted to go into law after this English major? No. (laughs) I knew when I graduated high school, I had a lot of options to me because I did well in high school. In that way, I fulfilled the Asian trope. I (laughs) was able to do like whatever I wanted. But at the time, I had my heart set on a career in music. I wanted to be a vocal performer performance artists like in the opera or yeah, or Broadway. That was my dream. And I really thought like for a while, like this college thing is so silly. I'm just going to go to Broadway and be a Broadway star. Like that's what I thought. But 
I think, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in my own podcast or in my book or, or elsewhere is that I am one of those persons who at the first sign of failure, I kind of freak out and I'm like, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> and I didn't get into all of the conservatories that I auditioned for. I got into a lot, but I didn't get into all of them. And I thought maybe that was a sign that, Joanne, you need to do something more serious. Like the singing thing is not the thing. And so I decided to major in English because that is <laughs> quite a bit more serious than music. And in my parents' eyes, they were like, hey, anything that's not vocal performance, we'll take. So, <laughs> and so that's the bar was so low, even exactly. English. Was <laughs> exactly. I mean, they, they weren't like thrilled, but they were just so happy that it was not vocal performance. And so that's what I did. And that was really just because I loved books. I loved reading so much. I had no plans to be a writer. I just loved to read. And I was like, well, maybe I could teach people you know, English and English comprehension, and I could become an English teacher at high school or something. That was sort of my vague plan. I mean, what funny foreshadowing, but <laughs> I, I love that so much. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I don't know if you have been recently watching TV. I know you mentioned you were in a book club. I wonder if you're in a TV club because I love TV. <laughs> I love TV. <laughs> I love TV. Um, I watched Partner Track. And I was obsessed, you know, shout out to Arden Cho. We love seeing an AAPI woman succeed. She's such a powerful, just like badass in the show. And listen, I get it. It's a scripted fictional show. But do you feel like some of those experiences that she went through, and I don't even know if you watched it, but like, did they mirror your experiences as a lawyer? Well, of course I watched it because number one, <laughs> I am an Arden Cho stan. Um, I love her. I think she's amazing. And she's, like you said, such a role model for women mm -hmm. in AAPI. And she's been working this for a lot longer than I think people realize. She's been at this since I, re since I can remember, since I was in high school. So a lot of credit to her. And as a result of that, I watched the show and I love the show. And I do think that there were times where... It wasn't so much that the like things that were happening in the show mirrored my career because she, she was a transactional lawyer and she was an M&A mm -hmm. lawyer and I was a trial lawyer. So with very, very different career paths and, you know, our day to day looks very different. But the thing that I did feel very much was authentic was her stress, was her mm -hmm. level of imposter syndrome, was the amount of times she was cut out of things, uh, you know, purposefully or unpurposefully. It really doesn't matter. The level of microaggression that she had to deal with on a daily basis. These were all things that I felt very much mirrored my life as an attorney. Um, I hate to ask, but do you have like a horror story you can like share? Um, I have so many horror stories. <laughs> but I mean, to be fair, like I love my firm. I'm still employed with my firm and I love them. And I think Foley is among the best places to work in the legal industry for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that they still want to work with me, even though I'm doing the Korean vegan full time. I think they're amazing. But I think that they also had, you know, growing pains, certainly. And also, even if you work at the best place in the whole world, that doesn't mean that every person you work with at a thousand person law firm. Mm -hmm. Is going to be the best person mm -hmm. in the whole world. Yep. 
So, I mean, sure, I had an experience once where, you know, I was working really late at night and the partner came by to check in before she was leaving. And I love this partner. I still do. I think of her as a role model. She's a total badass, but she's, you know, a white woman from middle America and I'm a Korean American woman from Chicago. And she's, you know, starts singing this song that I like, I had no idea like what she was singing. And she's like, you've never heard of this? And I'm like, no, I've never heard of it. She's like, God, you're so Korean. And I was like, okay, that was a a really strange moment. It was a total punch in the gut because I I just felt like totally like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know the song that you're singing. But on top of that, like this partner that I'm working for is, you know, as a joke, but still sort of not like criticizing me for not keeping up with whatever her version of reality and normalcy is. And that moment for me really crystallized kind of my feelings at working at any place that is predominantly white and, you know, where I don't feel like I've got a group of people that look like me and feel like me. Ugh, I have like such like the big ick. Like, like I hate when something that is just a factual, you know, matter of fact thing, like you are Korean, like is used as almost like a slur. It's like a negative, like that's just so nasty. I hate that. I hate that so much. And she didn't mean to be nasty, like at all. Like again, and that's the thing with microaggressions. Most people don't intend to be malicious or, you know, exclusionary by doing that. They just don't realize that unfortunately that's the result that that's what happens like that's the world we live in unfortunately we don't live in a place where we're all on the same level playing field where jokes like that maybe could be okay we're not on a level playing field and in this case she was a partner I was an associate so we're like definitely not on the level playing field so it was like totally uncool for her to make that joke yeah you know I think it's really really incredible I didn't even know that you were still working with that firm but like What was that experience like, like going in as this baby lawyer, like ready to go to trial, just like so excited for every case you're getting, like to climb that crazy corporate ladder all the way up until like, you know, you're literally a partner. Like for anybody who's watched like Harvey Specter on TV and been like, wow, like I am a suit, like I'm suits. Like, how did that feel? It wasn't that thing where I came into the firm and I was like, yeah, I'm excited. It was more just like... (laughs) hey, please don't fire me. (laughs) Um, That was much more my mindset. But like my interpretation of please don't fire me may look a little bit different than other people's, which is I'm going to do my absolute best to make myself so freaking indispensable to this firm that firing me is going to be the farthest thing from their minds. Like it's not even a possibility. Like that's the kind of person I am. Like I like to be first place, not because I want the glory of being in first place, but because I can't bear the idea of being in last place. And and the farther I away from, I am away from that, the better. And so that's what I did is I came into the firm and my attitude was like, I'm going to knock everyone's socks off. I will say yes to every project, even if it means that I have to work 24 hours a day. Like I will sleep in my office. I will work weekends. I will do whatever it takes to make sure that people recognize my commitment and loyalty to this firm and to its clients. So that's what I did, but it wasn't fun. It it was like mostly not fun. I will say, because it was just so stressful. Like it was so stressful and exhausting. There were fun moments, mostly because a lot of my colleagues are amazing and cool and I love hanging out with them. But for the most part, it was just really, really stressful and a lot of hard work. I will say 
it was never boring. I've had boring <laughs> jobs and those are the most horrible jobs in the world. It was never boring. I was always challenged intellectually, even creatively um, in many, many different ways, which I very much appreciate. Where do you think that hunger come from? I, I think that it literally comes from hunger, to be honest. My parents were starving when they were children. I mean, they're a product of war. They grew up during the Korean War. Um, and, you know, my they, they grew up right after the conclusion of the occupation. So like for the first, I would say, third of their lives, they didn't know anything other than starvation, some homelessness, yeah. um, poverty. And if you want to talk about that level of trauma, you, you'd be kidding yourself if you think that that's going to contain itself to just them. I mean, yeah. they grew up with that anxiety. And when they became parents, it's not like they were like, all right, now we're all good. Like, I'm not anxious about any of these things that I grew up being anxious with my entire life. And I think that for better or worse, that was handed down to me, obviously not on purpose, but for it was sure. something that I couldn't avoid. And therefore this hunger, if you will, you know, literally in the case of my parents for food, yeah. metaphorically, you know, manifesting in the way of financial security in my generation, that is something ingrained in me. It's something that I have to be very mindful of so as not to allow it to turn toxic. Totally. And, you know, during this time of your life, you are working this very, very demanding job. You're doing all of these things. And I do want to sidebar really quickly because I think one of the most inspiring parts of your story is how you're so vulnerable about how everybody's life has imperfections. You've spoken very openly about your past. And, you know, a few years into your legal career, you were dealing with domestic violence at home. And very few people, I'm assuming, knew about that. What gave you the strength to leave and what was it like to go through that? Well, I think that, you know, part of the drawback to vulnerability is that sometimes we haven't quite figured everything out. And that's what I always try to convey with, with the Korean vegan and everything that I do is that's okay. You don't have to have everything figured out. In fact, somebody might look at your life right now and say, God, you really don't have your shit together, <laughs> you know? And I, you know, and that's okay. I'd rather be truthful and honest about it than pretend that I do have my shit together when I don't. Like I can't stand that level of duplicity that makes me crazy. And so the thing with, you know, leaving my ex-husband and that marriage and even calling it domestic violence that makes me so uncomfortable. But that's because I haven't figured it all out yet. I mean, that's a part of my life that will probably hang around and linger <laughs> in terms of struggle uh, for a very, very, very long time. And it, it was not a healthy situation. I will say that it did lead to what probably people would call emotional and even more than that abuse. Um, so you can like see, like I'm struggling with, with even calling yeah. it things, you know? And like, but I will say like, I knew at a certain point that I wasn't as happy as I could be. And yeah. that the only person who was preventing me from being as happy as I could be was myself. And at first you're like, God, that sucks. But then you're like, actually, that's great because I control me. I I am in full control of Joanne. I can't control my ex-husband. I can't control my parents. I can't control my in-laws. I can't control my job. You know, I can do my best, but at the end, the person I have most control over is myself. And once I kind of figured that out, then it was just about dialing into what I knew 
I could respond to in an effective, productive way? Like how does Joanne operate to kind of, you know, pull the levers here and there to get her to exit that relationship so that she could then really like, this is trite, but live her best life. Yeah. I mean, I love that you have this internal locus of control. It's really inspiring to feel like, you know, you can kind of do anything if you feel like you are in the driver's seat. That is so true. I remember growing up, one of the most recurring nightmares that I've had, I I still get it every once in a while, but I used to get it all the time when I was a little girl, was that I was in the car and I was in the back seat and I was maybe two or three years old and I was wearing the same outfit that I always wore when I was that age. It was like this ugly yellow shirt. And I was so small, like I was just sitting in the back seat and like there was, was like this sense of dread and I was like, what's going on? And then I peer over into the front seat and realize there's nobody in the driver's seat and that the car is just moving with, you know, and like, there's nobody driving it. So I freak out. I'm two years old. I, my feet can't reach the pedals. So I'm like doing the best that I can to like not die in this car without a driver. And I think that my biggest fear has always been that somebody else is in control of my destiny and that Mm -hmm. I am incapable of doing the things necessary to take over the driver's seat. And it's been a really long process of struggling and understanding who I am to be like, no, 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 no. You're old enough. Your feet can actually touch the pedals now. Like you can drive now and you're the one who's driving this car. Well, so like, what, what do you think that process was that like you, you clearly didn't just wake up one day and you're like, bada bing, bada boom. Like I'm, I am able now, like, what has that process been like? And like, if there are, you know, BFFs listening who feel similarly that they can't control things and that they feel really helpless, like what process did you go through? I think that it's okay to lean on your crutches in these types of situations. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some people who are like, well, if I need to be tough, then I just need to be perfectly tough. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, like you can be tough, but you can also understand that, you know, you have weaknesses too. For me, like my crutch is spreadsheets. I really love spreadsheets. (laughs) I'm um, a big planner. I plan everything. Like you should see, like when we go to um, vacation, vacation, like every hour is blocked out um, in a spreadsheet that I send to everyone who's joining me on said vacation. Dinner parties, if I am planning a dinner party, every hour for the 24 hours leading up to the dinner party is blocked out. And so I'm a big planner. And so when it was time for me to figure out a way to exit my first marriage, I literally came up with a one-year spreadsheet that had a timeline and milestones and plans that I then shared with my therapist. And, you know, like that might, that's ridiculous. I'll be honest, it's like ridiculous, but... hey, I knew that about myself. Like this makes me feel better. It makes me feel stronger. I know it's absurd, but hey, I'll take what I can get right now. And I think that that's important is identifying those tools that make you feel a little bit more confident, whether it's a spreadsheet, whether it's, you know, a counselor, whether it's talking to your BFF, whether it's writing in your diary, you know, or even putting it on your calendar, whatever that thing is. I think those tools are really important and make making yourself believe that you're the strong person that you want to be. That is such incredible advice. And 
man, do I wish I was as organized as you. I live in <laughs> chaos. Like that does not happen to me at all. I was surprised to hear that. <laughs> I'm flying by the seat of my pants. Like I'm getting to the airport and I'm like, oh, I hope I'm at the right airport. Like literally, <laughs> like it's bad. But it is so amazing that you're, you know, so powerful and honest about the situation and that it's only a tiny part of your story. Pivoting back to the good stuff. So you're working full time. You have this incredible career. What inspires you? Like, oh, hey, this career is not good enough. I'm going to make a completely different change. Well, it, it was a long process, right? Because I started writing like just creatively, not lawyery in 2010. That's also when I, you know, bought a camera and started taking pictures of like, you know, the Chicago landscape, my office, like my five-hour energy bottle, like things like that. And wait, wait, wait. I, I know this is like a rude question mm-hmm. to ask women, but how, were, how old were you at, at that time? Oh, geez. In 2010, I would have been 31. Um, you know, so it would have been, yeah, I would have been 31, uh, I think. <laughs> yeah, 31. <laughs> okay, yeah, 31. I was 31 when I started like a Tumblr. I was like writing like poetry, like really bad poetry and stuff like that. Um, and, but like, you know, that was really just like an outlet for me, like when I was stressed out or something like that. And, and also like I was going through a rough patch obviously with my first marriage and it was a way for me to connect with people outside of that. But in any event, I started the Korean vegan in 2016, largely because I went plant-based and I was like, I need to figure out a way to veganize all my Korean food now because I refuse to stop eating Korean food. And then in 2017, I started writing in my captions and my Instagram captions in 2020. I started a TikTok and, you know, that sort of timeline is kind of documented in many, many different places. Mm -hmm. But in answer to your question, there are so many points along the way where the needle would nudge a little bit closer, a little bit closer to, hey, is this lawyer thing really what you want to do for the rest of your life? But here's the fallacy that I think many people believe, which is, oh, the needle just keeps going closer, 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 closer. No, like the needle went like, Close, close, close. No, back. No, close, close. No, no, no. You're going to be a lawyer forever. Um, And, you know, you had things like global pandemics that got in the way of your Mm -hmm. dreams. You know, I mean, when the global pandemic hit and I was working off my dining table for a year, I was like, this is it. I'm going to be a lawyer for the rest of my life because I don't want to lose my job. And that's what I was afraid of. It wasn't until November of 2020. This is after, you know, I think I had like a million followers on TikTok. I was writing an op-ed for The Atlantic based upon a viral video that had you know, that the Lincoln project had picked up. And I was also answering the phone, which was ringing off the hook because a new bankruptcy case had filed and everyone wanted to hire me for this new case. And I, this was the first time where I felt like literally I was being torn into mm-hmm. on the one side, the Korean vegan and all the work that I was doing there. It was like, just catapulting beyond anything I could have dreamed. And then on the other hand, I'm a, you know, still relatively young partner and a bunch of people are calling me because I have a very particular expertise in this kind of bankruptcy case. And I just was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like there is no physical way that I can be in two places at the same time. Right. And I cannot do my best for my clients or my best for the Korean vegan anymore at the same time. It's just not possible. And that was when I realized I needed to make a decision. At the time, I didn't know what that decision would be. But that was when I kind of said, okay, you got, you got to make a call and you got to make it soon because you're going to be losing right. out on opportunities if you don't. And what was that pivotal moment that pushed you one way or the other? I think, we, well, we all know how it ended, but... <laughs> 
there are so many pivotal moments like like pivotal like suggests like oh like you pivoted the full 180 like no you yeah. could like pivot 45 <laughs> you know I would say like you know obviously after that op-ed was published you know that was a really big deal for me like being published in the Atlantic you know a, a journal that I've been reading for years and one that I very much admired and that was so consistent with my own values and, and support of justice and democracy like that was really a big deal for me and I think that ultimately led to a lot of speaking engagements and I was like I, I don't even know like what that means and I remember <laughs> I was speaking to my lit agent I'm like do I like charge for this or like should, should I just like speak for United Airlines for free <laughs> you know and he was like no no you need to charge for this and I was like okay yeah. like how much do I charge like $500 or something <laughs> you know like I had no I never monetized anything before. So I had like no idea. And like once that started happening with regularity, I was like, wow, like maybe I won't make as much money as I did as a lawyer, but I could certainly make enough to like pay my rent and like, you know, have some food and things like that. And so I had like this track record that I developed over six months that proved to me that I could live off of the Korean vegan full time. Mm -hmm. And even then I had to have this moment where I did this exercise with myself where I literally imagined the absolute worst case scenario if I left my job. And I mean, like, literally, like, I was living in a studio apartment with, like, rats and, like, had a box for tables and I was totally divorced and disowned by my family and, you know, had to file for bankruptcy. Like, literally, that was my worst case scenario. Yeah. And I was like, well, what, what would you do if that happened? And it, it took me about, you know, 10 seconds to be like, oh, I'd figure it out. I'd be fine. I'd figure it out. Wow. And that's not normal for me. I am like totally, you know, beriddled with imposter syndrome and and every insecurity known to man. So I was surprised when my brain gave me that answer. And I think at that point I knew, all right, I can do this. That's awesome. And it sounds like by the end of it, you didn't even like hate your job in law. You just felt like you had this crazy opportunity in front of you that you really wanted to pursue. Is that right? I never hated my, well, that's not true. There were times when I hated my job. (laughs) I think every good lawyer will tell you that there are moments when they want to literally throw their computer out the window and burn the whole place to the ground. Like I literally felt that Um, multiple times throughout my career. Um, So that's going to happen. I will say though, that I never loved my job the way I loved editing a video for YouTube. I never loved my job as much as I did writing my cookbook. I never loved my job as much as I did, you know, recording a podcast episode. And that's really important information. Like that's really you know, critical data to have is at least being able to say that, you know, I actually really love what I would do for my dream job. But of course, the other piece of that is what we discussed it, you know, you also have to make sure that you can bring in revenue and that you could live off of that dream job. Like you have to have both pieces of the puzzle. I think a lot of people think, oh, I just need one. No, you you do need both pieces of the puzzle if you want to give your dream job a chance (laughs) at success. And so those two pieces kind of fell into place. And, you know, as much as I loved my colleagues and I still love my firm, I wanted to give myself this chance at being extra happy. What would you say and give as advice to the BFFs who are listening, who are thinking about quitting their jobs and like going in a different direction? I think everybody's different. I've actually interviewed a lot of people about the same question because I think these types of transformations are so inspiring, especially to me as a newbie entrepreneur. I love hearing success stories. And I've, I've basically surmised that there are two 
broad categories of people. There are those who literally have nothing left. They've maxed out their credit cards and they are just taking the biggest gamble of their lives. They've, you know, don't have any money in retirement savings. They, you know, they may have two kids and they've got rent to pay. And so this thing that they're trying, it needs to be a success. Like they have no choice, like literally, right? I'm not that person. Uh, I'm just not wired that way. I, you know, started the Korean vegan with a very nice retirement account that I was like, I'm not touching that. Um, and as well, enough money to pay my, you know, rent and expenses for over a year. And I think that I also had a spreadsheet <laughs> that, you know, had a, yeah, exactly. I had a spreadsheet that like proved my um, revenue potential um, based upon six months of data. I had like all this information that made me feel confident enough to take that plunge. So you can definitely be that person who has their back against the wall and says, I have to make this work. But look, I'm also a model too. Like I can, you know, if I can do it this more moderate, like, you know, less dangerous way, I think that it can work for many, many people. And this is one of the things that I've said many, many times. If we're all led to believe that we need to risk everything, that we need to risk literally starving in order to pursue our dream jobs, is it any wonder that so few people actually end up doing it? If there's a path out there that says, no, you don't, you don't need to risk it all. You can mm -hmm. risk some, but you don't need to risk it all. And you can still have this incredible potential for joy, fulfillment, purpose, and success, then I think more people would be willing to try it. And, and then we'd have more people who are happy and thus more productive in this world. That's awesome. So let's pivot to something talking about joy and fulfillment. You recently wrote a cookbook. Mm -hmm. It became a New York Times bestseller. I got to ask, I know this is like picking your favorite children. What is your favorite recipe out of the whole book? Oh, that like changes. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, it changes a lot. Depending on like, it's like just, this, it's the same thing as like, you know, today I'm in the mood for jajangmyeon, tomorrow I'm in the mood for, you know, banana bread. <laughs> you know, like, it's kind of like that. I would say that the jajangmyeon is probably one of my top five recipes. It's the cover of the book and it's, mm -hmm. you know, one of my favorite foods to eat. And I love that I'm able to make a version that I enjoy eating a lot, that my family enjoys eating as well. And that in my view is quite a bit healthier than the version that you would get at a traditional Chinese restaurant. I, I I love the traditional Chinese restaurant version, but you know, I like that I can eat something that won't like literally take out my entire caloric budget for two <laughs> days in one meal. So that's, that's, you know, that's good for me. Um, but I also really love, like I just did the tangsuyuk, um, which is actually the common partner to jajangmyeon. When you order jajangmyeon from a Chinese mm -hmm. restaurant, you often also get tangsuyuk, which is like this deep fried battered meat, but I use shiitake mushrooms. I made it the other day and it was so, so, so good. So I would say those two are my favorites right now. What made you decide to go vegan in the first place? I went vegan mostly because my then boyfriend, now husband, he wanted to go vegan. And so he had read a book called um, Finding Ultra by Rich Roll, who's, you know, a good friend and also like one of the most popular podcasters ever. And he <laughs> read this book and was like, all right, Joanne, I'm going vegan. I'm like, good for you. I'm not. You're on your <laughs> own there, buddy. <laughs> like, I was like, I can't give up like kimchi jjigae and stuff like that. Sorry. No. <laughs> so that's kind of how it was for like the 
first two weeks. But, you know, he kind of like wore away at my reluctance. And eventually I was like, fine, I'll like just try it. Um, And I was like, what's the, you know, worst that could happen? I'll hate it. And then I'll just go back to eating whatever I want. But I tried it and it wasn't that hard. It was actually a lot easier than Mm -hmm. I expected. And of course, like he was really happy. And then finally, my father was diagnosed with prostate cancer during that time. And I had just watched a movie that talked about the link between the consumption of red meat and prostate cancer, particularly in East Asian men. And that kind of spooked me. Like it actually really spooked me. And I was like, Mm -hmm. this is a very strange coincidence. And I thought, you know what? Maybe the universe is speaking to me. Maybe God is speaking to me. Maybe somebody just wants me to be a better influence on my father. And so I decided, all right, this is now a permanent decision. Okay, I'm going to text my dad after this and tell him he (laughs) has to stop eating red meat entirely. Um. (laughs) It's, you know, I'm not here to tell people like how they should eat, but I'm happy to provide the information. Yes, there is a pretty significant correlation between eating red meat and prostate cancer in East Asian men. We've talked a little bit about, you know, you have this massive following across social media. You have this award-winning book. You have a podcast. You have all these things. What was the moment where you were like, oh shit, this was the right call. I've made it. Like I'm big time. Um, like, you know, <laughs> like brag to me. Like I want to hear about what are your favorite wins? What have been the most impactful to you? I know you mentioned the Atlantic piece, but what else? Well, I think that I'm still too early on my journey to be able to wow. say, you know, like I, this is the absolute right decision other than to say, and you know, sorry, Foley people, like I will never go back to being a full-time <laughs> partner at a law firm, like ever, like no offense, but I would rather be like, you know, again, no offense to either Foley or to the people working at McDonald's, but I would rather work as like somebody at McDonald's than working at Foley, like, sorry, like full time. And, and it's just like, Hey, you guys got 17 years out of me. And that's all that, that, that this battery has for you, you know? And so in that sense, sure. I'm very confident I made the right decision, but as I'm sure you can relate to, particularly as somebody with a background in finance and considering the kind of content that you produce, like there are a lot of ifs, there are a lot of moments of second guessing. There are a lot of like, Hey, like there's only so much of me to spread around. So I need to be very strategic about where I invest myself, where I invest my financial resources and my capital. How do I ensure that I can continue creating beautiful, meaningful, impactful content by having some source of revenue that allows me that kind of freedom and that privilege, right? And so some of the decisions that I've made, I don't know. Like, you know, will they pan out? I don't know. Like, for example, this podcast, I spend 80% of my time doing it and it generates zero revenue. I don't know. Like, is that the smartest thing? Who knows? But, you know, instead of measuring my success on, you know, those kinds of metrics, like, oh, how many followers do you have? Or, you know, um, how many books have you sold? Those are all really important and they're very gratifying and they make me feel really, really good about myself. (laughs) But I think that like every single day I wake up and I love what I do. I love writing. I love connecting with people. I love sharing stories. I love building communities. I mean, this is like unbelievable that I get to do this for a living. And in that sense, the fact that I'm able to do it for a living, that proves to me that I have succeeded in a way that I didn't know was available to a person like me. You say available to a person like me. Can you give a little bit more about that? 
yeah, I just never thought I was talented enough. I never thought that I was smart enough. I always thought I was fairly ordinary that, you know, I'll, I'll just be lucky if I can just pay the bills and get a steady paycheck and work a nine to five and like, you know, just, just don't get fired. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I thought that was me, like, just don't get fired. And I think that there's this misconception. I, I literally just, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing like aid podcasts at once right now, but I just finished one where the woman was like, I'm just an ordinary mom and an ordinary teacher. And I have no talent at everything. And everything I've learned, I've done through an embarrassing system of, you know, trial and error. And he, she's like, I just wish I could find that talent that would define me. And I wanted to tell her, and I did tell her, I'm like, it's not about finding the talent that defines you. It's about defining the talent around who you are. And we don't need to be like, freaking Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, you know, Adele <laughs> in order to live purposeful and very productive and fulfilling lives. We don't need to have that level of extraordinary talent in order to be living your best life, in order to be living at above, you know, 80% or 70%, whatever that number is in your mind. You can just be like 10% better than like the people who are around you. And you could still be living this life where you're providing incremental value to such a degree agree that you get to do the things that make you happy and passionate while earning a really good living. And I think that's what I have come to discover over the past five years is I think for a long time, I just believed I wasn't talented or extraordinary enough to get to live the life that I now do. Can we talk about that imposter syndrome just for a second? Listening to your, to you say those words out loud is like kind of insane to me, right? Like <laughs> For someone to be like, oh, yes, like I'm very educated. I did well enough in school to get into law school. I then became a partner at a law firm and I, you know, build this business from the ground up from literally just an idea. For you to then sit there and say, I thought I was ordinary. Like, what have you been able to do to really overcome that imposter syndrome? Because I know so many people struggle with it. And it's crazy to me that you would say that because when I first started watching a lot of TikToks in the pandemic, your content was one of the first that I saw. And I was like, this woman is such a good storyteller. I wish I could tell stories like that. I wish I could enthrall an audience for 60 seconds. I wish they would watch my content like that. And, you know, I very much carved my own niche. My content certainly does not look like yours. It's for, it's like blurry, um, <laughs> but I film front camera because I'm not talented enough to do back camera. But you know, like, where does that come from? Where does that like feeling of inferiority when it's just palpably incorrect? Like, where does that come from? Well, I think that it can come from a lot of different places. And I think that it's really amazing to get to meet other Asian women in particular who are building businesses. Uh, and I certainly consider you know, influencers, content creators, whatever you want to call them. Like I consider them all small business owners. And I think that it's so interesting to meet them and hear their own story. A lot of times, many of them actually also harbor a crippling imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, but other times they're like, no, I'm the shit and I know it, you know, and I love that. And I'm like, God, I like, like, what is that like? You know, I need a list from you of who's who. I, 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 I think that like, it's really, really cool. I, I, you know, I had the chance to, I hate name dropping, but I did have the chance to have dinner with Juju Chang and, you know, Ooh. she's incredible and she's like powerful. And I do like get the sense from her. I'm like, yeah, she knows that she's the shit. And I <laughs> really wish I could like model myself after that. But who knows? 
knows? Maybe she also has harbored some sort of imposter syndrome that she's just really good at masking. For me, I, I think that you know, I'm a child of immigrants and my parents had it really, really tough in their lives. As, I, as I've alluded to, they just had a vastly different childhood than my own. My father was physically and emotionally abused to a degree that still, you know, curdles my stomach. My mother, her parents are loving and wonderful, but, you know, she was homeless <laughs> for a good chunk of her life, you know, because of the war. So like they have a very different understanding of tough love um, than I think, you know, what many people might be used to in American culture. And as a result of that, I think for them, being critical was a way of showing me love, mostly because they were reacting to their own anxiety. They wanted to protect me from all of the pains that they had suffered when they were my age. And, you know, kind of they were reacting to that. And as a result of that, yeah, like I I just grew up thinking that I sucked at everything. never good enough at anything. (laughs) Um, But in some ways that also propelled me to be the best at everything in order to prove that I was worthy of their love. Wow. I know so many Asian American young people can probably relate to that in such a deep, traumatic, seated way. (laughs) Because I remember bringing home a 98% on a math test and being asked, where's the other 2%? And being like, are you joking? Like, this is an A. This is an A plus. Like my teacher drew a smiley face. Like, what do you mean? Um, uh, yeah, so. that was always the thing. It was never good enough <laughs> to get an A in the class. You had to get an A in the class you were taking the following year. So like right. that was my life. <laughs> right. And, you know, now I think you I'm doing the math in my head. You're in your 40s. What do you think would be good advice for folks who are starting their dream career or, you know, getting financially stable or just like really making a change a little later on in life? Like what is the best advice that you've ever gotten? I remember I was running in Chicago. So I'm a long distance runner. So I run a lot and I do a lot of my, (laughs) I do a lot of my thinking while I was running. And I, this is before my TikTok. This is, you know, before what most people recognize the Korean vegan to be. I was running and I was listening to a podcast and it was an interview by ritual of a gentleman named David Epstein, who's the New York Times bestselling author of Range, uh, which is a fantastic book. And he was talking about how there are some people who take, you know, uh, model one, which is I'm going to devote 10,000 hours to this one thing so that I can be the expert at this one thing. Mm -hmm. And I think my husband's a great example of that. He's a concert pianist. He's one of the greatest pianists alive. And it's because he devoted far more than 10,000 hours to his craft, right? But then David's, you know, proposes that there's this other kind of expert if you will, what he calls the generalist. And that's the person who tries and fails and tries and fails and tries and fails and tries and fails. And they're actually, you know, not the best at, you know, any one thing, but maybe pretty good at a lot of different things. And barring that, maybe they're not pretty good at a lot of different things, but failing at so many different things has now created this sort of interesting tapestry of experiences that is 100% unique, one of a kind, right? And if you want to collect that level of varied experiences, oh, I'm sorry, it's going to take time. That means it's not going to happen when you're 20. It's not going to happen when you're 25, may not even happen in your 30s. Oftentimes it happens in your 40s. And what that conversation gave to me was a license 
to dream again. And I cannot even describe to you the level of liberation and fear I felt in that moment. It was like literally I was looking up at the shelf and I could see this box of all of my dreams just collecting dust over two decades. And this conversation said, hey, maybe it's time to take that box off the shelf and open it and see what's going on inside because it's not too late. Uh, wow, inspiring. Two points. The fact that you long distance run and listen to podcasts at the same time is incredible because when I'm running for even even like a quarter of a mile, I'm immediately thinking how bad my legs hurt and how my lungs are going to collapse. That's why you listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but like it's a but you're listening to the podcast and I'm like, wow, okay, I really can't focus on this. I need to focus on surviving. Um, gotta make it to the fire hydrant. And yeah. then I think this does go really nicely hand in hand with you know a piece of advice that I had gotten from my mentor and it was like something like, oh, like you are worried about doing something because it takes three years. Well, three years from now, you're still going to be three years older. Do you want that extra degree or do you want that new career? Do you want all those things? And, you know, time passes whether or not you're doing what you want to do. Mm -hmm. So why not just do it? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I know we're running out of time. So I always like to end on a high note. If you could close your eyes and a fairy godmother were to appear and wave a wand and grant you any wish related to your life, your business, your career, you today, present Joanne, are taking care of future Joanne, what would the wish be? Oh, geez, that's a really, really tough question. I would say my wish would be to, um, to be healthy, <laughs> I guess, physically mm -hmm. healthy uh, for as long as possible. I know that's like such a general thing, but like it's tempting to be like um, to get more likes and views on my YouTube account <laughs> or like, you know, to sign another book deal or whatever. Like those things are important, but you can't do any of those things if you're dying. So like I, I it's it's interesting, especially since going plant based, you know, I just I value my physical health so, so, so much. It's like almost like now, like getting to a point where it's like a report card like I need to get an A on my, oh. physical, on my physical health like it's a, it's kind of a big deal to me and so like that's something that's always sort of like underpinning everything that I do <laughs> that's really awesome because mm -hmm. you know health is wealth I love yes that. exactly well thank you so much again for coming on the podcast I feel like you've shared such like a wealth of knowledge today and I loved hearing your story I'm feeling inspired, ready to go, ready to write a book and, you know, yes. launch the rest of my life. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to hear you're ready for it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Joanne. Oh, thank you, Vivian. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Net Worth and Chill. If you like this episode, make sure to leave a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Got a financial question you want answered in the future? You can leave me a voicemail or text me at 908-858-3410. Make sure to follow me at Your Rich BFF across social media for even more relatable financial content. Special thanks to my team at Audioboom as well as Range Media and WME. See you next week. Bye!